Welcome to Get Real Parental Coaching. So you're through to your host, Sandra True. And today I've got an amazing guest today. I have Paul C. Brunson. And we're just going to talk to him about his journey as a dad. That's what I'm interested in. His journey as a dad, how things are going, his role, any challenges and that sort of thing. So welcome to the show, Paul. How are you doing? Sandra, I am beyond, beyond great, right? It's an honor to be here. I appreciate the invite. And I do have a story for you about the C in Paul C. Brunson. Let's get that out of the way first. So go for it. Why is there Paul C. Brunson, Paul Carrot Brunson? Why is just not a Paul Brunson? Here's the story. A lot of people are like, oh, he's trying to be pretentious and special. You know, he wants that C, he wants that character. There's a real story behind it. So I was born in New York, but I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. So Washington, D.C., you have Maryland and Virginia right next to DC. So we call it the DMV. And when I launched my matchmaking business, that was the first time that I started to consciously think about my brand, right? And so I remember when first thing I did is I Googled, I wanted to see, well, if I just Googled Paul Brunson, what would come up? And if you Googled Paul Brunson at that time, so this was like 2008, a Paul Brunson popped up who lived in the DMV, black man about my age, notorious drug dealer. And I was like, oh no, this man's got the same name as me. You know, people can think this is me. I got, I have to differentiate myself somehow. So, you know, I realized my middle name is unique. You know, there's not a lot of Carrick's, uh, especially black Carrick's. So I just embraced it with the the Paul Carrick Brunson, Paul C. Brunson. So I've run with it ever since. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So here you are, a dad to two lovely boys. Yes. Liam and Kingston. Now, did you get the name Kingston from Jamaica, by the way? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, love that. And then Liam? So Liam is Liam Lewis Brunson. Kingston is all is also Kingston Lewis Brunson, but the Lewises are spelled differently. So Kingston came from Kingston, Jamaica, where my grandfather was uh, was born and grew up. Liam is a name that my wife and I actually have loved from like when we first met over twenty years ago, uh, to the point where we would always say that our first child was going to be Liam, even if our first child was a she. Right? We just loved the name. But then what we did with the Lewises. Is, is Kingston is L-O-U-I-S, named after my father-in-law, so my mother's side of the family. They were Lewis's. Uh, the middle name was Lewis. And then Liam, as my grandfather, his last name was Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. They were the Lewis's of Kingston, Jamaica. So they both have a bit of grandfather. But yeah, that, that's where their names come from. Okay. I love that. So what about your upbringing? What type of upbringing did you have in terms of your, your family dynamics? So uh, I was born in New York and my mother's from Jamaica, from St. Anne. My father's from South Carolina, from Camden, South Carolina. We spent a lot of time in Queens, in Jamaica, Queens, uh, in New York, you know, growing up in the early days. And then we moved to Long Island, New York uh, a little bit after that. But the structure, you know, it was interesting. It was, I think it was typical for that time, like, you know, early 80s. My parents, they were the first first of their family. So my father was the first to go to college from his family. My mother was first generation Jamaican. So, you know, you could imagine the pressure being put on her to excel in this new land of America, right? And so very hard workers, but very loving to each other, to myself, to my brother. I have a younger brother. I have a younger brother. So we had a lot of family in the area. So grandparents, aunts, 
uncles, cousins. So there was a strong village. And I always talk about how a village really does raise a child. So I had a very strong village. And what's interesting to me about thinking about my relationship with my parents is that attachment theory is something that's talked about a lot in psychology. And there's a great book called Attached by Dr. Levine that I suggest everybody read. And in essence, he says, you know, how we see love as a child is how we show love as an adult. Typically, people either are secure, they're anxious, or they're avoiding. Uh, and secure means that when you were a child, there was someone that you could go to that you felt safe with all the time. And I did. I had that. So I came from, you know, it was a blessing. I came from a secure, attached background. And then the other thing that my parents did for me that I didn't realize until later is, you know, I never had any doubts of uh, or limitations around what I thought I could do. You know, I just got back from Jamaica. I spent a lot of time visiting schools out there. You know, I distinctly remember talking to a nine-year-old girl who was telling me how she didn't believe she'd ever live outside of her community, you know, because she was like, where do you live? And I said, I live between, you know, the U.S. and the London and Washington, D.C. And I said, maybe one day you'll be out there. She says, she's like, no, I'm just a little girl from the ghetto. Like, I, I'm never going to leave, you know. And I think what's so interesting about that is, is that at nine, her hope is destroyed. At nine, Nine, I felt like I could be anybody. If I wanted to be the president, if I wanted to be a CEO, uh, I didn't feel like I had any limitations. So, uh, so I'd say very blessed childhood. Yeah, very blessed, very fortunate. So that gave you a good stance for being a dad for your children now, I guess. It was a great model. And I also distinctly remember, and this is what I think is also interesting about a parenting is that, you know, not all parents grew up thinking they would become a parent or even having the desire to become a parent. But I, Sandra, I'm going to tell you, I wanted to be a dad early. Really? Yes. To the point where I had a Cabbage Patch kid. <laughs> I remember that. You remember those Cabbage Patch kids? So I had this little, this beautiful black Cabbage Patch kid named Raymond, right? And I carried this Cabbage Patch kid with me everywhere to the point where even when I went to university, I brought the Cabbage Patch kid with me. Boom, put him on my shelf. Boom, this is my son Raymond. Like, boom, you know? So early on, I knew I that's what I wanted, you know? And so I had that desire. So I had great examples. And my father, you know, my grandparents, well, actually my father, mother as parents, my grandparents all. So I have uh, lots of aunts and uncles, but one in particular who served as relationship mentors to me. And I was able to watch their relationship and they related to each other in a very healthy way and became parents, you know, so I had these great examples around me and I had the desire. Uh, so it was really like this perfect storm going into me becoming a, a parent. So then Jill tells you she's pregnant, you're ecstatic, I'm assuming, over the moon and all the rest of it. So how would you say you connected initially with your boys. Who's older, Kingston or Liam? So Kingston is older. Yeah. What was your connection like? So one important story to tell is that I wish it was Jill just saying I'm pregnant and it was all good, right? But, you know, tragically, we lost our first child. So we tried for many years, went through in vitro, uh, you know, IVF, lost the first child. So anyone who's gone through that experience, it's devastating. And what it does is it elevates 
your appreciation for for having a child, for being a parent. So you could imagine we were already excited. Like I had Raymond since I was a little boy, right? You know, even in going through IVF, that means that we couldn't even conceive naturally, right? That's a massive setback. So then there's even more desire. Then, oh my gosh, you go through these cycles and then you get pregnant. Oh, then you lost the baby. Then, then that. So when Kingston came about, right? It was, we were there. It was like, we we found out at the same time for in vitro, for anyone who hasn't gone through it, is it's it's a lot. There's so much physically that a woman has to go through outside of in vitro. I mean, Jill was getting shot, multiple shots every day. I was giving her shots everywhere, you know, having to take certain vitamins, having to do certain things. It was just so much. So, so when that moment happened, it was, I mean, rejoice, like doesn't even describe it. So it was just, yeah, it was incredible. So Kingston was our first and he was going to be Liam, but in the, uh, you know, when we saw him, when he was still in the womb, we could see all this hair and we were like, oh, he's Rasta. He's, he's Jamaica. He's, <laughs> this guy's coming out with dreadlocks. Like, he's, so that's why we switched it up and, and named him Kingston. Oh, that's really nice. And I get you, I get the story. I mean, fortunately, I didn't have to go through IVF, but I do know people personally who have, and it is a lot. It is a lot. And it's very stressful emotionally, let alone physically. And I think it's really important the way you build on that strength together. You know what I mean? Because that's when you need each other more than ever when you're going through something like that. So I totally, totally get that. So here's Kingston now. You're back up with the sleepless nights and the breastfeeding or bottle feeding. How did you and Jill coordinate your times together with the newborn baby that you've been desired to have for ages? We were a tag team. At the same time, we were uh, launching a business as well. So it was an interesting time because we were launching a business. We had both left our jobs to launch this business. And here we are with a newborn. And uh, it was exclusive breastfeeding. So it was like no bottles. Like this is exclusive breastfeeding, but it was complete tag team. But when I say tag team is that we tried to tag it together opposed to give each other, you know, shifts. Because I know that for a lot of parents, they'll take a shift. They'll say, okay, I'm going to be with the baby this time. And then I'm going to go to catch my sleep. And then you be with the baby this time. But what we did was we pretty much stayed together and kept the same schedule together. So Kingston was up at, you know, four in the morning. We were both up typically at four in the morning. And the reason why that helped us, and, and, and you know, it's different strategies for different parents, but that helped us because we were able to support each other and divide the tasks in the moment, right? So let's say, you know, because you've been there, it's 4 a.m., you're trying to get the baby to go to sleep. So you're walking around, you're walking around, but you're super tired. So if you have two people, you could walk around two loops of the living room, hand it over, sit, rest for a little bit, hand it over to the per the other person, get two loops real quick. You know what I mean? So we were doing divide and conquer in the moment opposed to divide and conquer throughout the day. And we had the space to do that because we were also launching a business. Yeah, because you'd both left your jobs then anyway. So I'm loving that. I haven't actually heard that before. I have only heard the shifts or one person just doing all of it anyway. So I'm loving hearing something different. Yeah, that's good. And you're up and as you say, you're in the moment because they change so quickly and if you're not in that shift by the time you've taken up the next shift that child's not doing that thing anymore and you missed it you're two or three shifts behind so i understand really good point yeah i totally understand that okay so here we are we just move up a little bit to our toddler stage Okay. How did you manage that? Because that's 
one of the most difficult milestones that I'm hearing from parents in terms of challenges, the whole toddler tantrum, and they're not sure how to manage that. How did you and Jill manage that? Yeah, so definitely toddler stage, very challenging, right? And the challenge isn't only the challenge you face with the child, but then as a couple, because you're spending less time together because you have more time on task or, you know, with dealing with, with the with the child. You know, it was right around that time that we actually created a rule that we have kept for the 12 years of Kingston's life. And then obviously Liam is in there. So right around that time when Kingston was entering a toddler, we started to get some momentum on our business. So we had a matchmaking company and I got an offer to co-host a television show with Oprah Winfrey. I heard that. Amazing. Yes, it was amazing because I had not even thought about television. So to then get a TV offer and it's with Oprah, it's just, it's incredible, right? So we lived in Washington, D.C. and the show was filming in Georgia, which on a flight was about two hours away, but a drive was about eight hours away. And the shoot was going to take about six weeks. And I remember thinking, man, I'm going to have to leave my family for six weeks. And it was terrible, right? But at the same time, it was this TV show. It was really helping the career. It was Oprah. It's like, okay, you know, so we talked about it and, you know, Jill was like, you got to do it. So I remember uh, Jill and Kingston was in the backseat in his little baby seat. Uh, They dropped me off at the airport in DC. We get to the airport. I start crying. And I was thinking, this is interesting because I don't want to leave. Even though there's all this potential opportunity, I don't want to leave. You know, for many reasons. I wanted to be there to support, wanted to see like a miss. At that time too, every day they're discovering something new and they're changing, you know, and you want to see that. Also, I was thinking from a safety standpoint, wanted to be there, like all these things, you know, some crime, but Jill's like, man, get on that plane. So get on the plane, go. And I felt depressed. Uh, And what we did is we ended up creating a rule in our family. And that is if there's ever a project that I take or Jill takes and we have to leave for over 10 days, we go together as a family. No matter matter what we figure out a way, that means kids are even in school, we take them out. And fast forward to today. So today, as I talk to you, I'm in Florida. Uh, We are, for all intents and purposes, living in in the UK. Jill is in the next room. We're all together. We travel together. Now, it's very difficult. We had to homeschool them at certain points. I mean, now they don't want to do their work. It's like, it's very, very, very challenging. But we do it because our primary focus is the family unit. So our focus is is us. And this is controversial too, but we as parents, Jill and I, we put ourselves at the top, right? So we are the most important people in our lives. And then our children are come after that. And the reason why is because we set the foundation. Um, love sets the foundation. And so, but together we are unit. So we ensure that unit. So going back to your question around being a toddler, that was the number one lesson that came out of of that space was creating not just that rule, but beginning to create boundaries. That was what that toddler phase taught us. And at least it taught you something because there's a lot of times people just parents just go through the stage and they just feel stressed and can't wait to get out the other end, but they're not learning anything. It makes it more challenging rather than getting to know the child, which, which, where's the strengths, where's the weaknesses. And that goes for that parent as well. So I always say, go with your strength, go with your weakness and work with it. Just try your best. You know what I mean? You're always going to just try your best because no one's perfect. 
and you can only do what you can do with the skills that so you sort of answered the next sort of question anyway in terms of um what do you find rewarding and challenging about being a parent yeah i mean the reward comes from i think living vicariously through them you know it's like you live a whole nother life again jamaica is a great example because we you know we just got back so it's fresh on my mind i remember being a little boy going to duns river falls you know and saying and climbing up the falls and being excited and scared and all of those things. And now we just came back. Now my boys climb up Duns River Falls and they're excited and scared. And I'm reliving that whole experience through them, you know, so there's that reward. There's the reward of seeing the growth that happens through their evolution and through their experiences. There's also, I think, a major lesson around how precious and important life is, how spectacular life is, even though, you know, you go through tremendously hard times, you get a chance to see how beautiful the journey of life is. Also, how everyone has real meaning. You know, I think there are a lot of parents who, you know, you go off to work, you have a boss, um, you feel like you have no control, you have no say-so in life. But no, the work that you're doing when you get back home is even more important. So many rewards. And you just brought up a good point, you know, because I always say when you go to work, you give your boss your best. You know, you want to be seen to be doing the best and you're, you're doing what you're paid for. But by the time you come home, you're giving the children the rubbish parts. You're tired. You're stressed. You know, I always say try and save 10% something of that positiveness for the children because they haven't seen you all day and they just don't want to hear this whole tired thing on a daily basis. If you work Monday to Friday and that's all they hear every evening when they come home, it's not giving them any sort of entity of, of life and they're not looking forward like, oh, well, you know, when they come home, so I'm always like, just save some to give your kids, you know, for that positivity of, of an evening, at least. Absolutely. And something that's helped us is always try to create things to look forward to. You know, when it comes to a marriage, you, you know, all the data suggests that couples who continue to date, they have stronger relationships, right? So as a married couple, you're still dating, right? Maybe every week, every two weeks going on. But when you look at the research, it's not necessarily because of the actual date that allows for the couple to remain strong. It's because of the positive expectation that the date has and that positive expectation carries you through the tough times of the week or the two weeks because you have something to look forward to, right? So even though I'm tired, even though this is happening, I can't wait for us to go do whatever it may be. And that carries you through. It's kind of like a wind at the sails, like pushing you through. The same thing for your family, right? To have something to look forward to. You know, every Tuesday night, we do taco night. Something to look forward to, but the boys love it, right? You know, every uh, Friday is typically pizza, you know, boom. And they get to choose the pizza. You know, they know that Saturday nights, we all are going to do something together, right? They know that every month we go on dates. So this is very important, especially when you have uh, more than one child, is that no normally when you have more than one child, the parents do everything together as a family unit. So once a month, we break it up, right? I'll do one activity with one of the boys. Jill will be doing activity with another one of the boys and we switch it up, right? So they're looking forward to it because they pick, you know, where are we going? You know, my youngest, for some reason, he's nine. His favorite place in London is Peckham Levels. We could go anywhere and you want to go? Peckham Levels, okay, let's do it. So that's his spot, you know? So that's where we'll go. So he's looking forward to that. So yes, things to look forward to, very important. So with Kingston being 12, have you had any of those conversations 
romantic relationships, sex, the whole thing. Yes. We might be unconventional as a family, but it might be because my business is in the relationship space, right? So uh, any jokes beyond this, you know, for the last five years, like, you know, so yeah, he's seven. He always would joke me, oh, dad, you're Dr. Love, you know? So he he's known and my uh, youngest has known that as well, like since he's been four. So we uh, talk about it open. We talk about relationships open in the house, they know, I think, far more than their peers on healthy relationships, what sex means, sexual organs, you know, so we're very open. I think more open than most on that topic. I love that because I'm always encouraging. When I said, I think I did a a workshop on how to talk to your children about sex and that starts from the age of two. Everyone was, two? Why would I be having a conversation about two? I said, well, we want to be sort of introducing consent. That's, you know, those sort of things. Is it okay to, to for a kiss? Is it okay to to hold? Can I have a cuddle? Just those sort of little things, you know, and that's why it starts so young. So I'm loving the fact that you are having this whole open relationship because you're leaving doors open. And I always worry that there's not enough talks in, in parental's household that they're going to hear it from the streets. They're going to hear it from the playground. And you know, it's not factual information they hear it. This is the problem. Yeah, and they're, re- they're really hearing it from TikTok. I mean, it's, it's like TikTok is out here as as parents. And yeah, and you're right. You know, it's it's really tough because as you like astutely pointed out at 12, things change, like straight up change, physically change, like every, everything changes. And the key is, I think, is it's about not just communication, but over communication. What I'm trying to do better as a parent is not to download all the time, yeah, but to understand it's communication. So I have to actively listen, you know, because if I don't present myself as someone who will actively listen and I'm just going to preach to you, you're never going to bring anything to me. And I'm trying to work on that because, you know, as a parent, you you know, you, like, you know, what's right. But to allow them to do their thing, come back, be able to talk about it, actively listen, see their perspective and then give opinion. Right. That part is the challenging part for me, but important. Very important. hundred percent. So what's the biggest question that you can think of that they've asked you so far? And you're like, man, oh my goodness. You probably can't even answer it there and then. You know, I always say that if the child asks you a question, you think, oh my goodness, it could be about anything, but you, it's a big question. You know what? And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? Let me come back to you on that one. You know, let me come back to you on that one. And that's okay. You don't have to have all the answers right there and then. So can you think of anything that Liam or Kix has asked you so far? I mean, every math question they have from school. It's like, I have no clue. So my sister-in-law passed away recently. So their aunt and they will ask questions around, well, so how long are you and mom going to be here? You know, or how long is grandma and grandpa going to be here? You know, very deep questions. And what I try not to do is I try not to just give a placated answer of, oh, we'll be here forever because we won't. Yeah. But then at the same time, you don't want to, you know, say I can go tomorrow. You know, you don't want to put that level of fear in them. So answering those type of questions around mortality is challenging because it's a delicate balance. Uh, Recently, those have been some of the harder ones. And does Jill jump in on any of those hard ones? 
Okay, mum's coming to answer that question in a minute. You already know. This is the default of all fathers is ask your mother. Uh, you know, ask she she can explain that one to you. You know, I'm busy. You you go, yes, I default a lot. Ask the buck a lot. Yeah. Okay. So just rounding it up then, you know, you've been absolutely great letting me get into your head and into your life. I just like to keep it real anyway. Do you know what I mean? Keep things going. So what about, what would you tell your younger self, should I say? You know, if someone was becoming a parent or thinking about having children, what would you tell your younger self in that age group? For me, hands down would be start earlier so you could have your third. That became the biggest kind of debate discussion that we had because after Liam, I was thinking, let's have another. Let's try to get that girl. Let's try to get that third. And uh, my wife was like, no, the shop is closed, you know? So that is what I would have said is is actually start earlier. I would have said that. But the other part of it is the importance of, of preparing yourself. When I say preparing yourself is going back to marriage, because that's my business, is the best time to work on your marriage is before you get married, right? The best time to work on your parental skills is before you become a parent. Mm-hmm. So you think about, and these are all standard uh, ways that we communicate communicate professionally, romantically, platonically, but developing the ability to emotionally connect, which a lot of, unfortunately, men, a lot of men, you know, that I've seen uh, from, uh, you know, like from Jamaica, Caribbean, African nations, I see that we tend to, you know, for good reason, I think, but tend to not emotionally connect to the degree that we should be, you know, Uh, and I don't want to paint a brush on everyone, but just people that I know, right? And those those are parental skills. Emotional connection is a parental skill that you could train and you could work on before you become a parent, that once you become a parent is going to change everything because emotional safety is the number one thing you could provide your child, like is emotional safety. And that can't happen unless you can create an emotional connection, you know? And so what I would tell myself is start earlier, uh, but then also start to develop or work on those skills, like your ability to emotionally connect, your ability to, to actively listen work on those early because that's going to help you once you become a parent. Love that. Absolutely love that. Paul, thank you very, very much for coming on. Great question. Didn't feel like an interview, felt like a conversation. Nice. Thank you. That's how I love it. And uh, I would say where will people get hold of you, but I guess you don't want people just coming at you at all directions anyway. Just Google him, really. Make sure you put a C in there. Yes. Make sure you put it. It's Paul C. Brunson, right? Yeah, Paul C. Brunson. Love that. So thank you very much, Paul. You've been great and we shall catch up soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye, Sandra. Hey, everyone. I just want to thank Paul C. Bronson again. Oh, my goodness. That was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So for those of you, just to just to reiterate, he is a relationship counsellor matchmaker, serial entrepreneur, television host, and author who specialises in relationship science. But today, we were talking to him from a dad point of view, from a dad's perspective. So listen, if you didn't take anything away from what he had to say today, you were listening to the wrong show. Yeah, this is Get Real Parental Coaching. So make sure you subscribe, share, leave a review, like, tell your friends and make sure you jump on board in two weeks time. You never know who we're going to get on this show. So thank you very much for listening, guys, and stay in touch. Okay, take care. Bye.